Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Greg Sestero, an actor and producer you probably know best for his role as Mark, Johnny's best friend, in Tommy Wiseau's cult drama The Room. Or maybe you know Greg for the book he wrote about that experience, The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, which was made into a movie by James Franco with Dave Franco playing Greg. I first met Greg when that film came to TIFF in 2017, and when Greg came back to town late last year for the screening of his new project with Wiseau, Best Friends, I jumped at the chance to grab him for this podcast. Greg wanted to talk about Ed Wood, Tim Burton's impressionistic 1994 biopic about the complex-driven Poverty Row filmmaker who gave us Plan 9 from Outer Space, Glen or Glenda, and Bride of the Monster, films that were dismissed pretty much as soon as they arrived in the world, but which clearly lingered in the mind of Tim Burton. Johnny Depp plays Wood as a sort of monomaniacal cheerleader, rounding up a repertory company of oddballs to bring his fever dreams to life, including Bill Murray's Bunny Breckenridge, Jeffrey Jones' Criswell, Lisa Marie's Vampira, George the Animal Steel's Tor Johnson, and Martin Landau's Oscar-winning turn as Bella Lugosi. Patricia Arquette and Sarah Jessica Parker play the women in Wood's life, and the whole thing plays as a love letter to one man's inextinguishable passion, however misplaced it might have been. So, I don't know, maybe you can see how Greg might make some connections there. This is someone else's movie. Uh, Ed Wood. I first saw it in August of 2009. Really? Um, okay. I got it on a Netflix uh, DVD. That's, all, that's a little, while, quite a while ago. But I remember when it came out in 94. I just uh, I didn't know really anything about Ed Wood. I, I knew Johnny Depp. Um, and it was in the midst of the room being discovered um, by audiences. So, so it started screening. What's up? 2009. 2009, yeah, because okay, yeah. um, there's an Entertainment Weekly article that came out at the end of 2008, so about 10 years ago, and um, it was all about the cult of the room, and it was now screening in LA, and people would show up once a month, and over that year in 2009, it really started to get out there in New York and London, and um, and so when I watched Ed Wood, I immediately identified with it, you know, because you have this passionate filmmaker and and this kind of eccentric friend that come together who have been pretty much rejected by the people in their life and and the system but they really want to make movies yeah and so when i watched ed wood it just i i never forgot it and so um i had the idea to write the disaster artist and and immediately before i started writing the disaster artist i told my co-author tom bissell i said this story is very much you know a modern day Ed Wood. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's why it became a special film for me is because I very much saw myself in, in these two guys. Yeah. I just, I don't know why, but I just assumed that you would have seen it the first time around. It actually, it must have played so differently for someone who's kind of been on the other side of that experience. Yeah. I mean, it was almost like watching a big part of your story, but also watching it um, kind of later on because I know in, in the film you know, the tragedy that happens with Bela Lugosi, it's almost like seeing your future in a way of, of <laughs> you know, yeah. seeing later in life of, because of, both these guys, obviously, Edward and Bela Lugosi had passed on by the time this movie was made, so they never got to see really what happened mm-hmm. uh, with this film. Um, but 
You know, what I think is so great about Ed Wood is that the movie stands alone. I've never seen any of Ed Wood's films, really. Really? Um, and I sat down and showed it to my parents. They didn't even know who Ed Wood was, and they loved the film. So it's really, um, it's just a great film with great performances, and it's a story, again, that's relatable. Um, and I think that's what very much inspired me to uh, tell the disaster arts in the way that I did, that it's really, it's not the story about the making of a bad movie, it's about friendship. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, when I think of Ed Wood, you know, he moved to L.A. from New York wanting to make movies. Um, he had this secret that, you know, I think he was okay with, which is something that I admire about that he was into cross-dressing. Yeah, for but, someone who, in the 1950s, to be comfortable with that, too. And yeah, and it, yeah, it felt like it, 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 it didn't feel like it tormented him. It felt like it fueled him in a way. Like he was willing to embrace it, you know, told his wife about it, I guess. Again, I read Nightmare of Ecstasy when I was prepping for The Disaster Artist, and um, a lot of stuff that's in that book isn't really in the film. Uh, but, you know, he comes to L.A. and the guy, I mean, he just went to work. I mean, he, he didn't really wait around for the phone to ring and, and be told, like, we want you to make a movie. He, he hustled and went out there and did so much more than people that have, you know, per se, a lot more talent. But um, that's one thing that I, I thought the movie gets across really well is, is he does it with such, a, such an innocence, you know, and he, he's so genuine about wanting to make movies. And then he got... In a lot of ways, very lucky to meet to meet Bella Lugosi at a time where where Bella was down and out and, yeah. and wanted needed a friend and, and really just kind of wanted to work and they were uh, just such a touching pair I thought yeah codependency but in a in an almost heartwarming way uh, certainly the way Burton presents it and I I remember when in 1994 when the film came out there was a great deal of it was simultaneously anticipation because. It wasn't that Burton had been talking about making an Edward movie, but his influence is always so felt in Burton's other films, like this love of kitsch and the love of Vincent Price horror and, and, that, and a certain type that Wood never did very well, but always wanted to. Like You always felt with stuff like Bride of the Monster and Plan 9 from Outer Space, he was giving you his version of whatever the big B-movie was he saw at the drive-in the week before. And they're not. there's nothing original exactly about Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's aliens taking over the world and... Uh, people walking around in cemeteries and all the creepy stuff that, that Ed Wood loved but that Tim Burton loved as well and you got the sense when Burton talked about Ed Wood as a person as opposed to a project you got the sense that Burton always remembered the movies a little bit better than they were and then in, <laughs> and then in Ed Wood in the film he recreates them exactly as they were with wobbly tombstones and bad lighting and, and just the sense that everything is good enough that just that one moment where Depp just goes, now nah, we got it. And it's, I, I feel such love for a type of filmmaking and a type of film in that movie that Burton, and, and the, like the greatest irony of, of all is that Burton is working with a massive budget to, to realize this, yeah. certainly compared to yeah, what yeah. it would ever yeah. had. And he's, he's giving us the pleasure of watching people invent stuff on the fly and make things up and, and just, stumble through a genre movie before anyone really understood what the language of, of genre cinema was and Burton who you know at that point in his career could do anything he wanted he'd just come off two Batman movies he'd made Edward Scissorhands um, Beetlejuice you know hit after hit and Batman I th- I'm pretty sure that for a while it was the top grossing film ever like until yeah the 1989 Batman yeah, yeah. I think until Terminator 2 came out 
Maybe. Yeah, which would be like, what, 91? 91, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he owned that for a couple of years, and, and then Batman Returns, you know, it, was, it didn't do as well, but it did pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and Disney's like, please work for us. Here's some money. What can we give you? Because he'd had the relationship with them 10 years before we yeah, made that's right. short films and worked on animation. And he said, I want to make a movie about Ed Wood. And in my head, he's Johnny Depp as Ed Wood. I want to do this now. <laughs> and it's so weird and idiosyncratic and sweet um, in its depiction of this, you know, this hack filmmaker and his morphine mm-hmm. addict buddy. Like, if you if you boil it down, it's a tragedy. But there is almost no tragedy in Burton's film. It's just, it's a it's kind of satirical, but it's also really affectionate right like it loves it, these people yeah it is i mean ed, ed Wood is really the ultimate indie filmmaker hmm. and and he would just do whatever it took to get a movie made and um and so i really like admired that because when i made these best friends movies you realize how tough it is just to get these scenes done you need the people to show up on time you need the location you need the weather so many things can go wrong when you're when you're shooting mm-hmm. and they usually do and it's about keeping that strength of being like no we're going to get this scene and we're going to get it the best we can on this day. And so Ed Wood was really kind of the master of that, you know. And, and I think the issue with Ed Wood, uh, he wrote a, he had a quote that I really loved. And it's just keep on writing. Even if your story gets worse, you'll get better. Yeah. And um, that's not wrong. And I think he, he just put out so many films and novels. And, and, um, and I think really the issue with Ed Wood, I think, was being an alcoholic, I think, really held him back as a person. Because, you know, he was striving to do so many things, but I think he never was able to kind of grow as a person because of that vice. And I think that's what kind of held him back from from building momentum, growing, and getting his work to be a little bit more, um, to strengthen his work so it could be taken in a different direction. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the, the tragedy of Ed Wood. But, I mean, you look at what he, what he worked on, and it was like just things every month every week he was putting things out completing things getting these movies made which is really tough um but just w- what i like about ed wood is is that he you know did it with a smile he didn't have like the attitude of wanting to be taken this way or that way he just did it because he, he loved to do it yeah and it's i mean it's kind of burton's whole thing uh in his storytelling but it really did happen he assembled this Strange little repertory company of freaks and mutants and, and people who are sort of on the periphery of stardom, you know, Vampira, Tor Johnson, and, and all these strange, not one-dimensional personalities, but people who could only be one thing based on how they looked and how they were. Uh, I mean, Lugosi had been trapped as Dracula for 30 years by the time they met? 35? Uh, and, and somehow... It was never a stumbling block for Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of it, I guess, is that when you're when you're working at that level, um, a sort of Skid Row B movie making, you're <laughs> kind of a piranha, and you'll just grab whatever's in front yeah. of you and tear it in, and tear into it and make it work for you. But he kept finding ways to use Lugosi, Bride of the Monster, and and Plan Nine. They're different. They're very different roles. I mean, Lugosi's. Yeah barely in Plan 9 because was, it was reconstructed. Speaking of that, I stole that idea when we made Best Friends Volume 2. Really? So when you see it, after you see it, I'll tell you what we did, but it's very, very Ed Wood. Is there a dentist <laughs> running around pretending to be There's somebody? a... Uh, no, don't, yeah, with, don't yeah, spoil it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is... It's one of those things where, you know, for decades I knew Plan 9 as a joke, as a like the Golden Turkey Awards number one movie, and Harry and Michael Medved wrote this book in the 80s and went before... In the 70s, probably... Before home video, uh, 
you would go to the library and read books about bad movies. You couldn't see them you unless, yeah. unless you were lucky enough to find them on TV one night. Uh, and so when I finally saw Plan 9, it, it could have only been a letdown because it was hyped up through all these retellings of how terrible it was. Oh, he got his dentist to impersonate him. The dentist was eight feet taller and you know, it just sounded insane. And then you see it and it's just like, oh, it's just silly and weirdly heartfelt. And then five years after that, you realize you, there hasn't been a month going gone by where I haven't quoted um, Criswell's line, can you prove it didn't happen, which is such an amazing, weird line to end a movie with. It's like, of course you can. There was no zombie invasion from aliens of Earth. <laughs> but to go out on that, there's a certain beautiful innocence um, that, I mean, again, the room does come to mind where you're watching a movie made by someone who knows exactly what he's doing and has not articulated that to anyone else or, yes. or has not been able to. And with, with Wood, I think that was what happened. And Burton catches it here and there when he lets Johnny Depp be incredibly enthusiastic and the rest of the room just kind of goes, well, okay. And there's yeah. this little sag in the energy of the film where it's briefly tragic that no one else gets it, that he knows what he's trying to do and no one else can hear it. Yeah. It's like he's singing a song that only dogs can hear. But it's such a weird proposition, and I get why people would make those comparisons to, to Wiseau, uh, and having met him last year on the Disaster Artist press days, I get it, right? Like, he's, he's really good at feeding into that image of himself mm-hmm. because that's what people want. And he seems to have decided that he'll give people whatever they want. Yeah. Now. But that couldn't have been the situation when you made the movie. No, I mean, I think when you make a film, and what I think with, you know, most of them with Ed Wood and with Tommy is... Mm. They believe they're making, like, the greatest movie. Like, they think people are going to watch these movies and really be just enamored and moved by each scene and be scared and, and, and be on the edge of their seat. Um, and, and so when you shoot for the stars like that, you either are going to get something that is, you know, incredibly bad or incredibly great. And so, um, but you're going to get a response. And I think, I think that's what these two filmmakers have is because they're naive, because they really go for it, their films are most of you know, are watchable. Now the difference really with Ed Wood is, is, you know, back in the day, Ed Wood would just continue to go and he never really waited to have a hit. He just kept making stuff, yeah. you know? And I think Tommy kind of stumbled upon this thing with the room where all of a sudden, whoa, like it became the midnight movie and the, the, the talk of the greatest bad movie ever made. And people were just flocking to it. So it put him in a predicament where he could just go on and make something else because it was just, he was caught in the storm um, well, and maintaining the legend of the room is probably a full-time job at that point in the first few years, right? Yeah, because if you think back, like let's say Plan Nine did what the room did back then, you know, I still think Ed Wood, you know, Tommy hasn't made another film outside of Best Friends, which, you know, is something I pitched to him to try to, because I again, I think, I think Tommy's at his best when he's being taken seriously, and I don't know if he at this point if he could do that for himself. So that's why I was like, okay, let me step in and try to do something with you and try to take you seriously. But mm-hmm. I think Ed Wood would have just jumped and tried to make like plan nine, two plan nine, three. You know, yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. the type of personality he was. Um, but it's just interesting that we never got to see what Ed Wood would have done with that, with that fame. Yeah. It's, and it only came so far after the fact too, that he's, I mean, he's a cult figure. He's a cult hero now, but I think even in the eighties, he was still kind of laughed at instead of, laughed at affectionately yeah uh, it took Burton and Depp to 
yeah, to an Oscar winning an Oscar winning film to to turn it around and, and make people appreciate it. But <laughs> when I read Nightmare of Ecstasy, um, it was just really difficult, you know, towards the end of how he passed away. Yeah, he did not. He did not have a great life. Like the last what fifteen years were kind yeah. of a straight up descent. Yeah, and just like him, kind of his last couple of days, man. It's it's tough. You know, I know that exact spot in Hollywood where that happened and every time I drive by it it's always it always reminds you of um, you know movie making in Hollywood and how it's so important not to have that be your fulfillment you know because each film is a different story and if you're looking to get your happiness from that it's so unexpected like you need to make the film because you just love the story and you want to put it out there and you're able to to move on and, and, and live your life and make sure you have like the right people around you and the relationships are what sustain you but I think um, you know fortunately with a situation like Ed Wood um, you know just being an alcoholic and dealing with that the void and the emptiness and the depression was just really tough because you know he really he was really putting his heart out there it's tough to, to not reward that um, you know because I think he, he deserved it yeah and it is weird to go back and, and see the real filmography the real history I mean he sort of spent his last couple of years making pornography and, and not the best pornography, if that makes any sense. I have, I've, yeah, I have I have seen, seen Orgy of the Dead. Uh, it, it was released in VHS. It was recovered and restored at a point where I was reviewing everything that came out effectively. And so I saw it, and it's like, yeah, that's an Ed Wood movie. It's, uh, but it's really unhappy. Like, it's not... It doesn't have the... It sounds dumb, but it doesn't have the pacing that his other movies have. That even, <laughs> even when they're being very even when yeah. they're stretching to fill time and yeah. sort of just coming up with more dialogue there's an energy in a lot of his stuff Glenn or Glenda has you know just breakneck speeches even though they're about crazy things uh, or, or Bride of the Monster or, or any of it there are, there are people working very quickly you can sort of feel the energy yeah yeah. he, he, he believes in this he wants to get it made he, yeah. he thinks it's a it's a masterpiece yeah and, and the actors too they're a little rushed they're going a little fast as though he might call cut at any second or they might just run out of film and you feel the, the, the pacing and Orgy of the Dead not so much it just felt like a bunch of things that were shot by a guy there's no personality to it so yeah and when watching Ed Wood it always makes me wonder um, how do you judge the filmmaker? Like, you know, if you, with that kind of budget and that kind of limitations, and again, I know because I experienced it making these movies, sure. um, you're very limited in what you're trying to create. You're, you're, you have a scene, you have a couple actors, you have limited time, you're, you're facing the obstacles of, you know, the lighting's changing, getting everybody on the, on the same page. Um, you know, if you hand Ed Wood $50 million and a first AD and, what kind of filmmaker is he? Or do you judge somebody with the bare minimum and see what they can make with absolutely nothing? I mean, can you can you think of a film, um, you know, when you think back to John Carpenter's Halloween, 1978, I think the budget was like 300, which back then yeah. is still pretty decent. But, you know, it's still, it's a movie that's just been loved. Critics love it. Fan, fans love it. It's still very watchable. Um, you know, can you do you think Ed Wood with a budget could have produced something like that? Could have been a, a talented director. I don't I don't know. I think maybe all it would have taken would have been a tighter editor and a better cinematographer and he would have been working a level up. 
uh, I think by doing things the way he did and taking so much control of it himself, he probably did himself a disservice. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I learned with The Room is um, making a film is such a collaborative medium. I mean, you need everybody. You want everybody on board. You want everybody to be there to for the film. Like You don't want someone pushing their own agenda. You want them to be like, hey, we're here to make the best film possible, and how do we do that? And you can really alleviate a lot of problems with the, with your team. You know, And I learned that with The Disaster Artist, and James Franco has spoken about this, where... Uh, he was so thankful to have, you know, Point Grey and Seth Rogen there to produce, to kind of guide and be like, hey, we don't need to do it in one day. We can take our time and set the scene up this way and bring in this actor and, and really take our time with it and, and do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but you're also working with a level of goodwill towards the project that I don't think would ever had. Right? Like the sense that everybody wanted to be part of the disaster artist. It's... I see it's, what you're saying. So a, he had to kind of pull it, people into... Yeah, would work with the same people over and over again because they were the ones who would work with him, I think. And also, in the case of Lugosi and, and even Vampira and and, uh, and Criswell, he was offering them work. And yeah, he did. So he did kind of create a band yeah. in, in a way, which, people which was cool. coming to him from outside that band. The disaster artist is, you say I'm making a movie about the room and everybody goes, ooh. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah you had a lot of people that just wanted to Yeah, and to it's, do it. like, the thing about the film is that it feels, about the disaster artist rather than the room, is that it feels like a party everybody's invited to. You can you can be part of it and enjoy it. <laughs> you're right. Well, what's interesting is um, the room isn't accessible. Like, the film that, the you know, the book was about that I wrote mm-hmm. wasn't accessible or relatable, but then the story behind the making of it was. Yeah. And that's how I feel very much with Ed Wood is when I think of the, about Ed Wood, I think about Bela Lugosi and I think I'm going to his house and then Bela Lugosi like trusting him and then and, and that moment on the phone where he, he finds out that he passed away. Like those are the moments in Ed Wood that really move me rather than the filmmaking stuff. Right. It's not about the movies he made. It's about the people involved. And that's the thing that Burton does so well is he builds the community of misfits and, and outsiders. I mean, it's basically a Wes Anderson movie before Wes Anderson started making yeah, movies. That's if that makes any sense. Like 100%. This, this little enclave of people fighting their own fight against an industry that's indifferent at best and hostile at worst. So, so what could Ed Wood have done to change um, his course? I mean... Plan nine. If if Ed Wood's around now and and Plan Nine, well, so yeah. So what yeah. what could Ed Wood do as a filmmaker to get to the next level that he could let's say direct a Netflix show? Yeah, I was going to say if Ed Wood is around now, he's working for the Asylum. He's doing the knockoff stuff, <laughs> Transmorphers or whatever they call them. Okay, that's there's a company that puts these out. I mean, they're they're based in I think they're based in the Valley. They make these cheap. Uh, Atlantic are, Rim right, instead right. of Pacific Rim, that kind of thing. They find out what's coming. They make a movie with a similar title. And I think their business model is probably dying now because the whole point of that was putting them in Blockbuster, so people would think they were renting or, or kind of trick people into renting the cheaper version. Mock, yeah, they call them Mockbusters, which okay. is such a weird name. But I think Ed Wood would have been really happy in Just the nineties making those movies for the DVD market, like the late nineties, early two thousands. That was his window. Strangely enough, like thirty years after he died. That that's okay. We were ready for him. I I, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting for me when I so when I analyze the whole situation. So I watched Ed Wood. I loved the movie, and I saw the similarities with the room and the low budget. Uh, these filmmakers that come in and just do it with no help. Mm-hmm. Like they they just like this is going to be my way. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to fund it. You're going to do it my way. And then they get 
some traction. You know, I, I know for me, when I saw this happening, I was like, I, you know, I love movies. I want to be in movies. What do I do? And I noticed a movie like The Room is loved, even by people in the industry. But it's not a movie that's going to get you work. That's right. going to get me work as an actor that people are going to be like, oh, you know, he's in The Room and uh, maybe we should cast, like, bring him in for the show. It's not It's not a movie like that. And a lot of Ed Wood's uh, movies aren't like that either. They're just entertainment, but they're not like executives aren't going to want to pull them and say like direct this big movie because they're looked upon as like you know more of a joke, more of joke entertainment. Well, yeah, we're. I mean, after the room, did you start getting offers for a specific type of you know like let's get him? He was in the room, and it'll there be were funny, some like random a- things that you see. I always I started out. I moved to L.A. twenty years ago, um, and I was lucky to get an agent called Iris Burton who had repped. Walking Phoenix and River Phoenix, and she had all the big child stars, and I kind of just, I made up a story that it, I was in Patch Adams for six seconds, but I was like, I was supporting. Right. Oh, you should have seen it before the final cut. Yeah, and so yeah. they liked, you know, I was twenty. They, they, there was the look that they were going for at that time. They were casting a lot of the Dawson's Creek stuff, and I got in. I got a, a role in, you know, a movie called Retro Puppet Master. Um, yeah. You know, which wasn't very good. So I was auditioning. I was having meetings at Disney. So you know, I was with a reputable agent. But, uh, you know, like anything goes, you get a few things and then that's that. And so when I did The Room, I had already had a taste of like what it's like to be part of the business, mm-hmm. being with a good agent. The Room was more of a joke thing I did on the side because, you know, obviously I mentioned it in the book, but I didn't expect it to go anywhere. So now we're back, you know, 2009 and all of a sudden there's a movie you're in that people are seeing. So it's kind of confusing because it's like, oh, shouldn't you, like a lot of people are, People are going to see this more than they're going to see the, the newest films. Like a thousand people are lining up in, in L.A. to see it every month. And it's in New York. It's in Entertainment Weekly. And you're being like interviewed and all these big trades. But uh, it still doesn't translate to mainstream entertainment. So what I looked at the situation as, very much like Ed Wood, I thought this story has like awards potential because of the characters mm-hmm. so i thought instead of me trying to push this thing as an actor which i don't think is going to happen and more than that it's not going to happen in a way that i'm passionate about because i don't want to do reality shows i don't want to do spoof convention stuff i, I want to like make good films and so i thought the story behind this movie is this generation's ed wood yeah and yeah, that's what i looked at it as and i was like you got to go first rate. You got to work with somebody who's respected, and that's why I worked with Tom Bissell, who's a journalist who wrote about the room in Harper's. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told him, like I said, in our first conversation, he was in like Kazakhstan or something, like way out there. And I was like, this story, I want, you know, I want to be the next Ed Wood. He's like, I love that movie. Um, and I was like, you got to get a first rate publisher. You got to treat this as it's nothing to do with the room, the Plan Nine, the B movie stuff. You got to tell the story as as if. It's a nonfiction novel, a universal story that people will care about. They'll care about these two people, and it's nothing to do with a bad movie, because I think then you limit yourself to to that, and that's very much like what Ed, you know. Once Ed Wood started going, all of his stuff started getting the reputation of being like more crap, you know. Yeah. Even though it's like he had a story to tell, the execution wasn't right. And so I learned with the disaster artist that. The way to go around that is you got to, again, you got to have a good team. We had incredible editors at Simon & Schuster who was like all on board to tell the best story possible, to put a cover out that people would, you know, so you had a team behind you to do that. And so that's why I'm always curious, you know, are are these, is Ed Wood somebody who's not willing to work 
in the confines of being told what to do in that way? Does he have to do everything himself? And um, and I think that's where Bella Lugosi was at. Is he had gone he had gone through the system, and he mm-hmm. was like, you saw the result of what had happened. Well, he'd been chewed up and spit out. Yeah, man. and so um, I think it was just refreshing for these two guys just to be able to tell stories without rules. And there's just certain filmmakers and creators that have a hard time working with rules. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a really good point. I don't know that Wood could have worked with other people the way he worked with himself. Like, that he just... The way he functioned, his specific style, that kind of heightened level of dialogue where everything... The narration in, in Glenna Glenda is... I think it's Glenna Glenda. Is just ridiculously ornate. Mm-hmm. This interior monologue that's actually an exterior monologue because it's a narrator rather than Glenn. Uh, it's... It's so preposterously florid, but it's his impression of what an important man would sound like. And it tells you how he sees himself as self-taught and how little formal education there really was about that kind of filmmaking. And how he's carved out this idea of what a good movie is. Yes. And that idea isn't something that he could replicate. He gave us his version of it. (laughs) That's absolutely... And that's what makes it... Interesting is that if if it did have a watchable plot, then it would just be average. Right, exactly. You're what you you as a viewer are responding to his version of the thing, <laughs> right? And so you're connecting to him more directly. Uh, there's a line in in the Cronenberg's version of The Fly about how the computer is giving us its impression of a steak, uh, <laughs> and and you know Jeff Goldblum has to figure out how to teach the computer to love flesh so it can replicate it, and that's what happens. I think in some of Ed Wood's moments in the movies he made, and that's the thing that Burton captures. You're watching someone filter an entire genre through his eyes, through his brain, and, and spit out something that isn't right, but responds that people respond to it in a different way, and it becomes memorable. Um, you know, in 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 the film, in in Burton's movie, the the greatest strength I think is that he shot it in black and white and yes. made it look. It was a brilliant choice. Yeah, because if it was regular Technicolor or or whatever passed for that other process of the time in the 50s when the movie is set it would look really weird and I think that was the first reason uh, I remember reading something somewhere where someone said either seriously or not seriously I'm not actually sure but someone said look I mean the black and white makeup everybody would be green you don't want to shoot that Mm -hmm. you don't want to you don't want that in color and it was as simple as that but also of course it lets Burton make the movie that he really wants to make about Ed Wood which is just a little heightened, just a little surrealistic. Which it needed, definitely. Uh, yeah, and it absolutely places him in a world where he makes sense. Right? Like the little pencil mustache and the, and, the, and Johnny Depp's features in 1994, the little bird-like face and precise pointy nose. Yeah. And the way his smile has almost kind of fangs to it because he pulls his face back when he grins. It's already a little bit of a character bit. And without any makeup, without any... Like Martin Landau's wearing all the makeup for everybody. But Depp looks just as much like a weird little Gomez Adams creature, like a like a Charles Adams character, yeah. and that sets us in their world from the get go. And the, and the score is a little weird with the theremin in there, and and just the sense that we are embracing the world inside his head all the time. So of course his movies make sense because we're already seeing the world the way he sees it. Yeah, uh, and people understand him. You know, it's it's uh, uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karzuski's script is so sympathetic to him but also quietly just moves the goalposts a little bit by having everyone understand him immediately the only pushback he ever gets are from people with money and people who are gatekeepers 
but that puts us on his side because he's an underdog and he has a vision. And you just can't get it past. And and that's what when you're saying you're like, how would he function within the studio system? He would never have functioned within the studio system. But he would have like he'd be the guy Charles Band gave a hundred thousand dollars to now to make a movie. Yeah, uh, that would be perfect. The, the puppet master thing makes perfect sense. That of course you would know that world. Like that's. The, that's very much yeah just just get it done in five or seven days we just want it delivered yeah here's even a mansion if you, even Make if it's in the mansion even if you see the, the you know the poles sticking out of the puppets it's fine yeah you know the strings um that just just get it made that the full moon experience does exemplify a very specific type of cinema because again i reviewed all of that stuff when i was coming up now see they they went a little different in in, in puppet master three i felt like they they is that the one where they turned into good guys I'm not when sure did they, they introduce the Nazis? I think in, in three, but yeah. I think that I thought they updated the quality and the, the acting. I thought that was the best film, but I just think at the end of the day, like they're just going to try to make it for as little as possible and as quick as possible. Yeah, well, that was the Charles Band promise, right? Like, there's not just one subspecies movie. We're going to make three of them. Yep. And William Shatner might be in one, but he won't be in the other two. It won't matter. We'll get <laughs> someone else. The, just the the churn of those movies. Um, and every week, every week there'd be a new one. Like VHS tapes would just show up constantly. Paramount was their distributor. Yeah, and they would just it. mail them out to us like, uh, like a Nerf grenade that just kept pumping. You'd get one and then another, and every now and then one of them would be okay. <laughs> I just yeah, I'm more of the nature of like really taking your time and, and living a story. Yeah, those living the project. And uh, but it's it's funny because when we um, Tommy and I went in for a meeting. Um, with a big literary agent who had just read The Disaster Artist and like saw it was a film and he was going to rep it, which was really exciting. And so I had Javier Bardem playing Tommy going in. That's what I, what I thought okay. of when I was writing the book. Uh, and so I went in there and I was like, you know, what about an Ed Wood type film? And the first thing he said was, like, don't bring up that movie. It didn't do well for them. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, that's interesting. It didn't do well initially, but it's a film. It's such... A respected movie, yeah, it never went away. That won Oscars and that will live on forever. And so, to me, I think even Ed Wood would would prefer a film like that than some like commercialized. You know, the black and white was a was a was a risk, but it, it made for a much better film. Um, I think he would have preferred that outcome, and and I think the audiences d- discover it. It's now a timeless film. Yeah, and I think. Um, to me, that's a much stronger success than just like some comedy that would come out and did it would, that did well at the box office. I think the way they did Ed Wood was perfect. Yeah, the the lesser version of this film, I think, is the one where Bill Murray plays Ed Wood, and it's in color and it's a comedy about a wacky guy who has crazy ideas. You know, like you've you've seen that movie a yes. dozen times, a condescending take on him. Burton just. Burton plays it straight. Like he lets everybody else be real and dramatic, and the comedy is there. Um, you know, nobody talks about um, Sarah Jessica Parker in the film. She's great. quietly wonderful, yeah. like in a really small way. She's she's, and she was able to find both the humanity and the confusion. You know, like, uh, it's weird. I just saw um, Welcome to Marwin last night. The oh, okay. Robinson X film, yeah. which is god awful. Oh, is Sadly, it? yeah. It's, oh, the story of of, um, of Mark Hogenkamp uh, it was made into a documentary called Marwin Call, like eight years ago. It's incredible. It's a the documentary, the, the true story, and the documentary. The way that the way that the filmmaker Jeff Melberg tells the story, it's great. It's legitimately wonderful, and you can see Robert Zemeckis seeing that movie because Melberg is credited as an executive producer in in his film, 
uh, and thinking, oh, I know how to tell this story with digital effects and, and make the Barbie dolls come to life. And every decision is wrong. Yeah. And, and it's ultimately just reductive and demeaning. And the one thing that works is Leslie Mann playing uh, Hogan Camp's neighbor, who is basically doing what Sarah Jessica Parker does in yeah. Ed Wood. And I thought of it like a lightning bolt when it happened, when I was watching it. Um, it's the compassion and the, the attempt to understand the other person. When someone presents you with something that you don't fully understand and almost can't believe, the, the revelation of this identity. With in, in Welcome to Marwin, it's the idea that Hogan Camp has not a secret life, but the way he's processing this horrific trauma that he endured is to create this elaborate fetishization of the world and, and, and to sort of take all the women in his life and make them Barbie dolls and act out lives for them. And she realizes that he's brought her into this world without her consent or even her understanding. And she tries to be sympathetic mm-hmm. in exactly the same way that Parker is in, um, in Ed Wood. And I just thought that's the one true thing. Like that's the one thing in this movie that actually makes sense mm-hmm. emotionally. And Burton tosses it off. Like it's just part of the story. Yeah. It's, it's not like there's no huge moment the orchestra doesn't swell we're not led to understand and sympathize through her we just see her being a person like yeah that's what you would do you you would try to be a good person about this situation that you just don't understand yeah most people don't even realize that she's in the movie and she's great yeah and she's so good i mean everybody remembers our cat because she's the more prominent character but revisiting the movie it's like no she's so good she's sir jessica parker is so good in this little part and um and Burton gives her the moment. Like, he gives her the space to, to do that, to find that character and play that role. And, um, again, that wasn't a thing that I would have necessarily credited him for at the time, because he was doing these big, weird studio pictures. But they were all, with, with the exception of Edward Scissorhands, they were all really fast-paced and didn't have a lot of emotional content. Yeah. Uh, but then he found these tiny moments of humanity and then builds, builds the larger relationship between Wood and, and Bella in such a, a smooth, assured way. He's never shown that kind of confidence since either. Yeah, it's a lot of confidence because, you, you know, you're in black and white, people could laugh at it. Yeah. He, he didn't try to, like, mock their friendship. He, you really just, you felt for both of them mm. in a way that had humor and had weirdness, but uh, was just so beautifully done. Yeah, it is such a a strange, sweet little film in the middle of all of these big budget movies that he was making. And you just, I feel even now, I know people said, he said, uh, I know he said Big Fish was autobiographical, but it still feels too much like a fun house. Like, uh, like the, you get to play with the circus. And this movie doesn't. This movie feels like the little film that he carried around in his pocket forever. Even though, yeah. even though he didn't, because that's the other thing I found, I was doing just basic research. He, I knew he was going to direct Mary Riley, the one with, that ended up being made with Julia Roberts and uh, John Malkovich, oh, okay, okay. the Jekyll and Hyde story. Not very good. Uh, but he was going to direct it with Winona Ryder in the lead instead of Roberts, which oh. might have been different, but he fell out with Sony, or Columbia Pictures at the time. He fell out with Columbia. It didn't happen. And he just flipped over to, it, to the Ed Wood script, which was at Disney. And So there was an Ed Wood script that had been... Uh, uh, Alexander and Karzewski had been working on it, I think independently of him. He wasn't going to make it. It just happened that they said, we have this. So it's interesting that they had been, an Ed Wood project had been going around, which was that because he had 
fans or they just like the story or do you know what uh... I think um, Karasuski and Alexander were doing things like the people versus Larry Flint and they had come off problem they'd written Problem Child I remember that okay. the John Ritter comedy and they wanted to <laughs> do right. other stuff and they have these a bunch of other scripts that were all sort of roughly based on real lives and uh, I guess I, I don't know I don't want to speculate but I think it predates Burton's involvement okay because he would, there would have been no point in commissioning them to write it at that point in their in everyone's careers. So they just kind of looked upon like interesting personalities from it feels the last like couple it. decades, maybe. And yeah, people who people who were sort of cultural outsiders, I guess. And I'm I'm sure there's a third one, and I can't remember it now because I'm blanking on it. But they, uh, oh, Man on the Moon, uh, the Andy Kaufman movie, that was oh, this yeah. as well. And I don't know if that was commissioned after the fact because. They wrote Larry Flint for Milos Forman, and he said, let's work on another picture about that a person. That makes sense, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Andy Coffin was somebody who had that appeal from, from all the work he had done, but Wood was just so out there. Yeah. Which was yeah, which is surprising that they had been writing something about him. Yeah, Ed Wood did not have a built-in audience that either Larry Flint or, or Andy yeah. Kaufman would have had. Yeah, exactly. In 1994. And I think, um, I mean, it's kind of similar now with The Disaster Artist in a way where... You know, when I pitched the the book years ago, um, there's only one editor at Simon Schuster that knew what the room was. Really? And, and, and they're the one that fought for it to get it made, um, to take on the book. And so it's a kind of similar in that way. And then it reminds me of, um, you know, James Franco, who ironically was introduced to this whole thing by the by the book. He had mm-hmm. never seen the room. He had seen the billboard and thought like, yeah, Rogan told like me the story. Where never you're like, it and they took him to see it in Vancouver. Yeah, and so he's reading the book, and then he went to go see it, and he was just like, this is, this is incredible. People are, like, dressed up in tuxedos, and they're smoking weed, and they're... He just saw, like, there's there's something here that is being tapped into. Um, but that's the only way that I think a lot of people found out now about this story, much like much like Ed Wood. And so I think it's, it's, it's these outsiders that have something to say and just don't know how to say it, and they just need help. And I think that's kind of the beauty of this whole thing is... Um, you know, you have someone like James Franco who knows what it's like to be an outsider, but has made projects that has made him an insider, and he's willing to help the other voices out there a lot like Tim Burton. Yeah, it is a weird... I mean, the whole Ed Wood thing, the idea that now he's seen as a tragic figure, it's probably more to do with people seeing Burton's film than Wood's films. That that kind of funhouse effect where you've come through the other side of it, and who you it's not that I, I don't know that Franco's performance in the disaster harvest overwrites uh, what we know of Wiseau in, in, in the room but I did think that it sort of it found that third dimension of who he must have been making the movie like it feels like Franco figured out a way to be a person and a cartoon at the same time yeah which is who you see on the on the screen in the room as well because Clearly, this is a human being acting, but he transcends himself in that weird way yeah. and becomes two-dimensional, like becomes one-dimensional even in some scenes. And Franco reels it back in and makes it possible to see where the creative decisions come from and how you got there, how everybody got there in that movie. It's uh, Wood, Ed Wood, the, the Burton film does the same thing for Ed Wood the man, I think. It shows you how he would have existed in the world, even mm-hmm. though the world itself is a little broken already yeah. like it, it's it's a surrealistic realistic film yeah uh, and that casual exaggeration 
seems like it would have been who that guy was. We are in his head with him, so that at the very end, when he decides this is his, you know, like this is how I want to be remembered, this is my masterpiece, you can believe that it's an organic moment that he has built for himself, even if it is a delusion. Yeah. Um, and the way that the disaster artist handles that moment for Tommy is that we get to see him decide. He doesn't convince himself. He chooses to go with it yeah. in a different way. Uh, so this deflates the question I always ask at the end of the podcast, which is, what, if anything, of this movie have you incorporated into your own work or borrowed from or leaned on? Um, because you basically created the answer film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without meaning to, because you started as a book. But I think um, I think it just gets back to what I mentioned in the author's note, is, is, is art is expression... You know, can it fail? Yes, right. it can. I have seen movies that where it failed. I just saw Welcome to Marwin. But please go on. But I think, um, I think that when you express yourself, it's just it. You never know what's going to happen. That's kind of the beauty of it. And I think that's what I learned with the Room as a young actor. I, I truly believed that this film would have no impact on anybody's life, and that it was just a home movie that Tommy was making. And, you know, 15 years later, 16 years later, almost, um, you know, I've been in Russia, I've been in France, I've been traveled all over the world, and there's just always people that show up to see this movie, and they're so excited to talk about it. They're so excited to bring their friends and watch their faces respond to the, yeah. the craziness. So, um, that's the beauty of it. You never know when you make a film, but, uh, yeah, I guess what I learned through Ed Wood and through Tommy, if you're going to go out there and you're going to try, uh, shoot for the stars. Yeah. Also have a giant octopus around. <laughs> How is there no giant octopus in... I, I'm going to decide that the, it's in the harbor. We just never see it. And all the shots of the San Francisco Bay... It's there, yeah. There's a giant octopus there. Yeah. So now we've connected them. It's, an, it's, a, it's a cinematic universe. Yeah. My thanks to Greg Sestero, whose new project with Tommy Wiseau, Best Friends, arrives on Blu-ray and DVD next Tuesday, January 22nd, from Lionsgate Home Entertainment in a two-volume edition. So, Volume 1 is already available to rent and buy on iTunes and Google Play. Volume 2 will also be available on those platforms next Tuesday. Thanks also to Peter Kaplowski. He knows what he did. You can find Greg on Twitter at Greg Sestero, all one word. And you can find Ed Wood on Blu-ray and DVD from Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. Oh, and because this never happens, treat yourself. Look up episode 118 of this podcast where Jason Connery tackles The Room. It's available through the search bar at someoneelsesmovie.com, or you can find it wherever you found this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com, which I just mentioned. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. Just too darn loud.